Hello and welcome to Pulsar Space Impulse's very own podcast on everything spacey. I'm Ria Urban, your host for today. Welcome everyone to the very first episode of Pulsar Space Impulse's very new and very own podcast. Our very first guest is Zaria Sarfontaine, who has a bunch of um, work titles, job titles. Uh, one of them is the Bid and Mission Concepts Engineer at Astroscale. She is also the co-founder of Frontier Space Technologies, and she is the chair of UKSEDS, the UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Welcome, Zaria. Thank you very much for having me, Ria. <laughs> right. So can you just walk us through your life and introduce yourself to our listeners um, just tell us where you come from, where you are now, um, and basically start with your uh, with your childhood. Excellent. Well, that's that's a lot to cover. I'll try and make it like a bite sized piece. Um, but yeah, no, I was um, I'm originally South African. I was born in South Africa. I lived there for about twelve years before moving over to Ireland. Um, so the accent makes absolutely no sense. There's there's no trying to decipher it. Um, and yeah, I think the growing up, I don't think I realized that space existed. South Africa is kind of very focused on South Africa because there's a lot going on there. So it's it's not really the land of opportunity, things like that. So, you know, as far forward as I could think, it was just basically, you know, I, I want to go to university. That was kind of the furthest that I thought ahead. Um, when I moved to Ireland, there was a few more opportunities, but I also went to an all-girls Catholic uh secondary school um so some of my choices were things like home economics or art or music so not really the the you know the engineering technical drawing things that I might have been interested in but it was still good um and I ended up choosing uh in in Ireland it's a kind of a strange system you have to do English Irish maths and a foreign language for your school subjects and then you get to pick three extra so I did physics art and geography just to show you how confused I was at that point of <laughs> what I actually wanted to do. I understand. <laughs> and actually, I did much better in Irish than I did in maths. Um, I did so poorly in maths, in fact, that I had to do a special exam over the summer to even get into my university course to be able to study engineering. So mm-hmm. from on paper, it did not look like I was an engineer. But in my head, I knew what I wanted to do was engineering. I wanted to build things, fix things, take things apart, learn how they work, things like that. Okay. So just for our listeners, um, I know that you have a bachelor's in engineering in aeronautical engineering. You have a master's in astronautics and space engineering. And you are currently doing a PhD in aerospace, aeronautical and astronautical space engineering. Uh, so, wow, going from... Irish to engineering, yeah, <laughs> that's a it, it's a bit of a leap. It's a bit of a leap. <laughs> uh, there's still there's still a lot of ways to be creative in engineering. So I think the the art and the Irish and German and all of that still helped. Um, okay, and fun. how did your your teachers and your family react when you said that? Okay, well, I'm actually better at this, but I want to do that. I it was it was a hard sell. Um, <laughs> my parents are my mom studied psychology and she became a teacher and my dad is a horticulturist so he runs a garden center um so no technically inclined people in the family really um 
and me being the oldest as well. My sister also studied engineering, but she's younger. So because she came next to this, it was a little bit more de-risked, let's say. Um, but no, it was, it was it was interesting because it was, it like I said, all of the questionnaires that I filled in, I had career guidance counselor at the schools, you know, they were kind of saying, okay, it's great that you're passionate about this, but you know, on paper, maybe we should look at other things. Like um, my mom kept trying to suggest jobs that were still technical, but a little bit more artsy. So she was like, oh, but what, what about graphic design? You know, graphic design, you still get to work at a computer. <laughs> you know, you still get to do all the technology things, but it's a little bit more creative and things like that. So yeah, it was a little bit of a hard sell, but I think my parents were fine as long as I could convince them you could get a job afterwards as someone from South Africa. That's like the number one thing that gets drilled into you from very young age is doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter what you study, you need to be employable. <laughs> Um, I think the the moving over to UK and doing the master's in space engineering was actually a bit of a harder sell because I could convince them that aeronautical engineering was still just engineering and they know that engineers get paid well and you know have job security and all those things but when I told them okay I'm going to save up money for two years and then just move over to the UK stop everything for a year and then study this very very specific course and then <laughs> hope I can find a job afterwards that was was harder yeah okay wow well done that's amazing right and after your master's you chose to go for a phd i chose over the course of a year <laughs> to go for a phd um so I, I moved over did the space engineering masters and then you know was completely thrown into this whole new world of space um i did my my first week we studied uh, astronomics and I had this stupid idea that it was going to be any way, shape or form similar to aerodynamics. Where like, you know, astronomics, aerodynamics, they must be connected somehow. <laughs> completely wrong, but, <laughs> you know, completely just, just so much new information to take in. Um, yeah, so much to do. And then after that year, it was like, okay, what's next? You know, do I, do I get a job? Do I study more? do I go back into aerospace? And what had happened was I could only find a job in aerospace. Like I could only find a job in these aerospace roles where they couldn't guarantee you that you're gonna work in the space sector. You know, you might end up working in um, aviation, you might end up working on transport, things like that. And that that's not what I studied my master's for, you know? I really, really just wanted to work in the space sector. So it was a lot of going back and forth um, on like, if I do a PhD, am I like overqualified for some of the jobs that I want? You know, will I be able to go back into industry? If I don't do that and I take an aerospace job, I'm going to get stuck in a certain sector and not be able to transition over. So I had like a, a gap year almost where I was a research assistant for a few months and, and that kind of gave me time to figure out what to do next. But the opportunity for the PhD was that the, my supervisor was same supervisor for my master's. She was amazing, so supportive, and she helped me kind of create the PhD that I wanted to do. And I kind of saw it just as three years of building up all those skills that I didn't have at that point, that meant that I wasn't getting jobs that I wanted. So I had mm -hmm. like a mental list of like picking up systems engineering and testing and all of these kind of things over the three years. And then, you know, eventually mm -hmm. ending up hopefully where I wanted to be. <laughs> that's great um you mentioned something and that's very um important so in the uk a lot of the 
well, not, not just in the UK, in every country, I imagine, um, a lot of space-related jobs uh, are strictly connected to the RAF, so the Royal Air Force. So you can get certain jobs unless you're a UK citizen or unless you've been in the country for at least five years, so they can do all the background checks. Um, was that the case with you? Have you had any trouble getting a job because of that? Because you haven't been in the country for long enough? So I think that would have been the case if I was South African, 100%, because I saw so many of my friends who studied masters, you know, have to move abroad because they just can't get jobs in the UK because of that reason. Um, because the UK invaded Ireland a number of times and did very bad things to us, it means that um, a lot of the, the legislation around like being able to work in different countries and stuff like that, Irish people get like a certain exemption to that. So right. luckily for me, it meant that because I had my Irish passport, I could work here without having to jump through all those hoops. But there, there are a lot of hoops, right? especially like you said, because of how close it's linked to the defense sector. Right. Okay. Let me ask about your jobs then. So first of all, you're a chair of UKSADS, which I'm a member of um, as well. So what do you do there? What does UKSADS do and what do you do? Too much. We do too much. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so UKSADS, so SADS is this global organization, uh, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. And there's different chapters in different countries. Um, the UK happens to be one of the oldest ones because we've been around for about 35 years. Um, and then the other ones are, you know, there's one in the US that's very active. SADS Italy is very active. I think we're the only ones that swap it. Normally it's like said US, said oh. Italy, said everything. <laughs> but we have to be different. Like, <laughs> we have to be different. So we're UK says. It runs off, it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Um, but, but yeah, the, the organization, we're about a week away from our biggest event of the year, which is the National Student Space Conference. Um, that's where we bring about 500 students together to just network with everybody in the space sector, do workshops, go to panels, uh, socials, <laughs> everything like that. Uh, we also run a lot of different competitions to help students get the skills that they need to get into the space sector because we're kind of that point bridging people, students, to the actual space sector. Um, and what we hear a lot from industry is, you know, the students don't have the right skills to, to enter the space sector. They don't have the practical skills they need. They have theory, yeah. but they haven't applied it. And from students, we hear the same. We're like, we hear there's just no opportunities to actually get hands-on with a lot of these projects. So we try to get them to design and build rovers, rockets, satellites, you know, just very low risk. You know, you can make a lot of mistakes and then you can... If it blows up in the end, it's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, basically, we, we, we run a lot of those events. We also have spacecareers.uk, where you can yeah. learn all about careers in the space sector. That's going through a major redevelopment at the moment. So we're trying to make it a bit more sustainable and a bit more professional. Um, then, yeah, and apart from that, there's just so many other small things that we get involved with as well. We just try to be kind of the voice for the students amongst industry. And we try to make sure that any opportunity that the industry has, we're flowing back down to the students. So uh, the conference that you mentioned, uh, NSSC 23, uh, that's going to be in Manchester between the 4th and 5th of March, is that right? And it's at the University of Manchester. So if people want to meet you, they can go there and meet you there 
Yeah, definitely. I might be running around like a headless chicken with with a folder in my arms, but it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, right. So you said you you do everything as chair there. What does your work involve? So uh, at EKZ, we have about it fluctuates a lot, but we have a, between fifty and a hundred very active volunteers. So these volunteers are the ones that do a lot of the real work. They're the ones that put together the competitions, that put together the events, that you know help us write papers about the sector, anything like that, anything and everything. And they're kind of split into different teams. So we have outreach, we have diversity, we have competitions, we have membership, anything like that. Um, and then every year we elect an executive committee that is made up of six members and they're the ones legally responsible for the charity and they're the ones also a bit more focused on long-term strategy. Um, although it's difficult as six students to decide what the future long-term strategy of a charity should be. Um, mm. But it's basically just taking a longer view on what UK sets could be doing and building up a lot of those kind of industry connections as well. Right. I, I think that's a good opportunity as well to um, really get started and, you know, do your networking, um, meet industry um, and also academics as well. Cool. And then you went on and became the co-founder of Frontier Space Technologies. How did that happen and what does Frontier Space do? So Frontier Space is interesting because I think if anybody, if you talk to anybody that knew me a few years ago, um, I would say that I'm not sure what I want to do for a career, but the one thing I'm very sure of is I never want to have my own business. You know, that was the one thing that I always told everybody, don't want to have my own business. Too much work, you know, <laughs> you're not able to shut off. That's the one thing I don't want to do. But when I was doing my PhD, I was working on a device that's going to help satellites do orbit a bit quicker. So it's, it's one of those kind of clean space initiatives. Um, and there's a product there that... As an academic, as a PhD student, I was just finding incredibly hard to actually give to people. <laughs> it was it was a case of, you know, I know this technology exists. I know it can help a lot of people be more sustainable. Um, I have a way to make it really cheap. I have a way to make it really adaptable to different satellites. But just the physical act of actually being able to commercialize it just wouldn't be possible without having like an entity to sell it. Um, so the opportunity came along where there was already three co-founders of Frontier Space Technologies who were spinning out technologies out of Cranford University, um, and they invited me to join. So I think at the moment we've shifted focus a little bit, so we're not so much on the drag sales anymore. They still exist if you want them, um, but we're more focused on this uh, miniaturized lab that we're sending to space so you can do microgravity experiments in space. Right. That's that's cool. Um, going back to the drag sales. Um, so space sustainability is a big thing. It's very important. But I recently read some articles where the industry was trying to downplay how big the problem is, how big the problem of space debris is, according to you. Ooh, if only I had the answer to that question. <laughs> it was... When, when I was first introduced to space sustainability and space debris and all of that, it was a half an hour session as part of one module as part of my master's where the lecturer was telling us that, you know, these pieces of debris traveling at 7.8 kilometers a second, you know, causing chaos, you know, this is happening, it's going to get worse, 
we haven't fixed it yet. And then they just moved on to the next topic. They were just like, right. okay, yeah, now we, now we have to go with propulsion. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, and for me, that just stuck in my brain. I was like, wait, no, <laughs> this <laughs> seems to be the most important thing to focus on right now. Why aren't we talking more about this? And I think the difficulty is there's so, so many variables when it comes to space. Um, there's, it is the models that we currently have to predict how much space debris is up there, to predict how much worse it's going to get, to, you know, to even track pieces of debris. We're just not there. We, we can't, we don't have an accurate estimate of what's up there. We don't have an accurate estimate of how much worse it's going to get. Um, and because of that, it's really, really difficult to get that sense of urgency across because even if it's the case that, you know, it's not going to be an incredibly huge catastrophe within the next 10 years, if we don't start fixing it now, it's going to not be possible to stop it at all. So exactly. it's, it's that kind of, yeah, feeling. But it's, it's difficult, especially because space sector is developing. So there's a lot more industry now. There's a lot more new players. And when you're thinking about business, you need to think about profitability. So of course. It's, of course. you know, it's difficult, but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, I, I think I'm like neutral about it because it's, um, we're seeing it pop up a lot more at conferences. We're seeing a lot more of the larger organizations like the UK Space Agency, for example, wanting to be world leaders in it. Um, but it's still treated as like a side topic. You know, it's like, oh, okay, we're having a conference. We should have a topic on sustainability. It's not at the forefront as much as it should be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, part of the problem is that so low Earth orbit is congested already. Um, and we sent up 1700 satellites last year. Um, we're going to send up a lot more this year. Um, but the satellites are getting smaller. So they argue that that's going to be better. And low Earth orbit is not just, you know, one, uh, you know, one orbit. It's it's a lot of orbits. Um so yeah, it's it's a difficult thing, and because there's a lack of legislation, um, and companies are shifting the blame here and there, <laughs> it's it's a hard, very hard topic. But yeah, I think something must be done before the situation gets as bad as, for example, you know, the case of ocean, oceans here on Earth and polluting the oceans. So we we shouldn't wait until then. And already um, there are instances when these satellites or space debris crash into the International Space Station. We're going to have a lot more space stations up there. And then when these satellites uh, crash into each other or into anything else, they can fragment to even smaller pieces. So, um, yeah, we definitely need drag sales and companies who help deorbit these. Um, that's a great idea. Okay. And... You also work for Astroscale, and Astroscale is trying to do something similar, um, deorbit satellites in a different way. Uh, can you tell us how you landed the job and what you do there? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think just to speak to what you said before as well, I think Space debris, like I said before, it's so complicated. It's so complicated to, to model and all of that, but it's also so complicated to fix. So I think there's there's so many different facets to it. One of them is, like you mentioned, fixing the regulation to make sure that, you know, people comply to things. Um, the other one is trying to fix 
what's already broken up there. So trying to bring down some of the debris, which is what Astroscale does. Some of it is trying to prevent future debris when we're sending objects up. Um, yeah, I think I think my, the worst phrase that we always hear is um, people saying, well, space is big, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> the probability of things hitting at the moment is low. So, yeah. Sorry, I have to say that there's a certain South African person who actually said <laughs> that, and his name is Elon Musk. He said space was big enough. There's no problem. <laughs> we can't. We can't just have non-controversial people. You know, yes. South Africans have to just be that little bit controversial. <laughs> yes, and space is big, so he didn't lie. Space is really yeah, big. Yeah, but it's <laughs> such a frustrating sentiment. It's so, it's it's like um or for geostationary satellites that are further away, you don't necessarily have to deorbit them, but you have to put them at your graveyard orbit. And a graveyard orbit basically just means that we can guarantee 100% for the next 100 years, it's not going to come back down to Earth. Right. What happens after that? Exactly. What happens after the 100 years? <laughs> it might still come crashing down. So we still need to fix it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's one of the many things that AstroSkill is working on. Um, so Astroscale is looking to do uh, a bunch of different things, but mostly focused on like active debris removal. Um, so being able to remove satellites from orbit or being able to remove pieces of junk from orbit. Um, and then, you know, all the kind of adjacent uh, sectors that that include as well. So things like looking at refueling or things like looking at being able to swap out modules of satellites and make them live longer, yeah. anything like that, anything to do with an orbit servicing. Um, but yeah, no, I actually got the job because I, through UK sets, <laughs> I think, um, partially because of, you know, I qualified for it, but I think mostly because of networking. Um, one of the trustees at UK sets works at AstroScale, so I was able to talk to him a lot about it, talk to him about different roles, um, saw him at different conferences. I'm sure he put in a good word for me as well, which goes a long way. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it's getting better, but I think the space sector is quite you know, um, still growing, still developing. So the more people you know, and the more people who know of you, the, the easier it is to get in. Yeah, definitely. Right. And what do you do as bid and mission concepts manager there? Engineer, sorry, not manager, engineer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that is, it, it sounds like a made up title. I'm still figuring it out. I've only been there for about a month now. So you don't have a job description? <laughs> <laughs> the basic idea of it is okay. that um, I'm an engineer, but yeah. I'm working on the business development team. So okay. we're still at AstroScale, you know, still technically kind of a startup, you know, we're making a yeah. lot of money, but we're still technically a startup. So we have to still apply for a lot of these government bids and these larger bids. And to be able to do that, we need to convince them that we have a really good product. Um, and there's a lot of technical work that goes into putting in a proposal or putting in a bid. Um, and, you know, the engineers are focused on actually building <laughs> the, the next satellite and building the next uh, piece of equipment that we have. So what I do is I work with the engineering team, I work with the business development team, and I'm almost like that bridge between the two. And I put together a proposal to hopefully further the company. That's cool. Um, there are a few more companies who do similar things to, to AstroScale. I just wanted to ask about this. So do you feel that they're like a real competition or do you feel that the, you can work together because there aren't enough companies um, 
concentrating on deorbiting satellites. So you can work together to achieve the goal of clearing um, low Earth orbit, or or is it like a competition? It's it's a bit of a competition because the the funding available for things like sustainability yeah. is a bit low. Yeah. So I think there there is always that little bit of a competitive side. You know, you want to you want to win the bid. Um, but as we saw with companies like Spaceforge, where um, for the longest time, if you said that you want to manufacture things in space and then bring it back down, people would just laugh at you. They'd be like, there's no way, that's way too expensive. And then Spaceforge allowed, like burned a path for that and allowed that to become you know, a reasonable option. And now there's all the other companies popping up that are going to try it too. You know, It's, it's a similar situation with, uh, active removal where there's just there's so many different ways you could approach it but you just need a few companies first to be able to say hey this is not just like a pipe dream it also makes business sense it makes financial sense it makes legal sense you know um to be able to do all of that and i think they're they're very very different i mean the <laughs> once we actually remove the first piece of debris from orbit that's going to be a huge day but yeah. it's going to be so different every other mission that we do like it's yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, think about think about what we tried before with like harpoons and nets and lasers and arms and just everything. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, right. So, bids aside, do you think we need more companies like Astroscale to solve the problem? Yes, I oh. do. <laughs> I also think we need more companies that are. Um, able to survive i guess because <laughs> i think a lot of the the even my own startup a lot of the startups in the space sector join uh, create a startup because they're passionate about space and they yeah. have this cool idea that they really want to do um but maybe it's me becoming more and more cynical but it's it's really hard to do that without money <laughs> True. it's very difficult space is very expensive um so as much as i don't love business because it's you know it's very hard numbers it's very salesperson -y. hard um, numbers you're an engineer i know i know i but i like my engineering numbers <laughs> i don't like negotiations <laughs> i don't like having to sell things okay um, but it's 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 important it's so important to be able to to actually get to that point where you can then save humanity or you know clean up space or yeah, do all absolutely. of those things yeah business space right what do you think the solution in the long run is to space debris problem? Because currently there are guidelines which you either follow or you don't, so they can't really reinforce them. Um, there are companies who are sending up satellites to very low Earth orbit, so eventually they're going to come back down to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere, so that's, that's one thing. Obviously, we can try and capture the space debris, but there are millions of pieces of space debris that we can't even track because they're so small. Um, so what do you think the long-term solution is? And I agree with the notion that everything that goes up has to come down. Yes. <laughs> you say that. The answer, unfortunately, is all of the above. But okay. to kind of to take that apart a little bit more, um, Yes, there's, there's regulations. Regulations are still incredibly important, but to be able to 
implement them at an international level, which is needed because space is so international, it takes a very long time. And that's why things like the 25 year rule where you have to do orbit within 25 years after end of life, that's why that hasn't been shortened yet because it's just very, very difficult for every everybody, every spacefaring nation in the world to agree that, okay, this is gonna be the new number. Um, but it's still important. So it's still important for the UN and space, global space agencies to work together to implement that. So that's one side. Um, the other side is that the, the new space, so the, the space companies that aren't part of agencies that are using this for commercial benefit, they're growing a lot quicker than space agencies are. So those like 1,700 satellites that you said were launched last year, probably like 80%, if not more of them were commercial satellites. You know, they're, they're, they're starting to, they, they need to make a profit. So for that, you know, keeping, introducing stricter guidelines isn't necessarily gonna work. It's more about getting across the idea that it's beneficial for the companies themselves to have a cleaner space environment. Because we're, we're doing a lot of studies on, to show that like, to be able to avoid debris is costly because you have to, you know, move your satellite out of the way. You have to use propulsion. Propulsion is mass, mass is expensive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's expensive to live in an environment that's polluted and you're, you're at risk, you know, your satellite that you spend years developing, you know, building, launching, all of those costs, they, it could just be gone in an instant. So yeah. for that, it's more about business practices. So it's about making sure that the, the new players in the space sector understand that like it's beneficial to them to be more sustainable. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of like the agency side, we still need the regulation side, we still need the business side. Um, we still need to clean up what's there currently because <laughs> that's also going to keep getting worse. So that's the active removal side. Um, but it's difficult to know because it's all of these things together. And then on top of that, that there's a layer of us just not knowing what's out there. Like that's still, we need to be developed because there's all this talk about space traffic management, which is basically setting up um, basically rules of the road. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like trying to, it's it's a motorway up there, but there's no lanes. So we're just trying to put in lanes, we're trying to put in rules, things like that. But it's hard to do that if we don't know where the things are or, or that. So, so those things. And then yes, the best thing we can do is remove things from space. And at the moment, the best way to do that is by deorbiting. But a very recent paper <laughs> that may or may not be discussed at <laughs> the next National Student Space okay. Conference yes. um, is suggesting that the burn-up is also changing the composition of the atmosphere, and that is actually making it harder for things to deorbit. So yeah. as much as, you know, the idea of let's burn things up so that we can um, get rid of the junk in space because that's safer for space, it's going to make it harder long-term to be able to deorbit things. Right. Okay, and capturing everything with a net and just throwing it in outer space... <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be um, a viable solution. I've, I've been asked that question before. Um, or why don't we... Like we, we, have, we... We did a competition where we asked kids how they would clean up space. And uh, that was a suggestion. Or, you know, using lasers to make it explode. Wow. Creating a black hole next to the Earth. And then trying oh. to get the black hole to suck space. Maybe not. So, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. But, but there's no such thing as a dumb idea in space. We yeah. did fund a mission that shot a harpoon 
at a piece of debris to try and deorbit it. Okay. And we have considered lasers. <laughs> and there are ideas that sound completely insane. There are still nets being suggested as well, because different very high-tech nets, but <laughs> nets nonetheless. Yeah, and it's been suggested that all that debris uh, would have to go to the moon. And then when we finally colonize the moon, we can use those uh, pieces to build whatever we need to build. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or might... maybe do that in low Earth orbit, have like a recycling center. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ISS <laughs> is going to be decommissioned soon, so we can have another space debris recycling center <laughs> in place of that. Um, right. Okay. So let's just say that satellites are needed. So all these companies are not just greedy and they want to make money. Satellites are needed um, in our everyday life as well. So it's a good thing that there are satellites up there and that they're trying to send new generations of satellites um, into low Earth orbit to help us because we use them for Earth observation. So they're very important in uh, climate change monitoring, for example, um, in our banking systems, the GPS that we use. So we do need satellites. Um, it's just what we do with them. And you mentioned the 25-year-old, uh, the 25-year rule. Um, so I think the U.S. changed that to five, starting a few years from now, it's going to go down to five, but I'm not sure any other countries will implement that. Uh, mm. But the U.S. definitely changed that to five, which is an amazing thing. Um, but it still doesn't solve the problem of the debris that's already up there. Uh, there's one more thing I want to ask you about. Have you heard of Astriograph or Privateer Space? Yeah. Um, Right. So they have a map of the sky, uh, essentially, and, and all the satellites that are up there. And I've seen these maps and they're amazing. It's amazing how many things are up there. But as I said, they can track anything below 10 centimeters in size, uh, as far as I know. And um, there are different different colors on the map saying that, oh, this is an active satellite. This is an inactive satellite. And then the most of it is unidentified objects. So I would imagine that if a country sends something military up, <laughs> so, um, you know, military-grade satellites, we wouldn't know much about it. So that would, <laughs> we can still track it because we can see this, there's something up there, but we wouldn't know, you know, when it's going to come down, what it is doing. Do we necessarily know the exact orbit? So th these are hard questions. So my last question, or last topic I would like to cover um, is the future of the space industry. How do you see, um, is it worth investing in? Is it worth um, studying to get into the space industry? What, do, what can you say about the future? Yes, <laughs> we're just going to say yes. Okay. Um, I, think, I think the space sector is growing faster than any sector I've been a part of before. Sure. Um, it's getting much wider as well, um, which is both great and a problem because in the space sector, we tend to rely very heavily on people joining the space sector because they're, they love space and they're interested in space. Um, and then maybe not putting that much effort into making sure that the working hours are convenient and that we give good holidays and that we pay very well. <laughs> um, so I think, 
I think the space sector is super exciting and I think there's a lot of people who want to join it but I think we also need the very standard you know administrators we need IT support we need all of those kind of things that we're maybe not catering too well for at the moment <laughs> um, but it does mean there's a lot of gaps there I think in the, in the space sector what one thing we constantly hear from industry is that they just can't find the right people you know we need people from other sectors to decide to join the space sector and to decide to join us um, but it's definitely very very exciting um, and I think there's just the reason why I joined was because when when I finished my aeronautical engineering degree, I was I saw the future. I saw a glimpse of like what's going to happen, and I saw that I was going to spend the rest of my life optimizing the shape of a wing, you know, <laughs> to eventually, hopefully, um, <laughs> save a kilogram of fuel, which oh. would make me a millionaire. You know, it's it, yeah. that was that was like the future, and and now it's you know every single project you work on is like you know some aspect of it has never been done before mm. we're sending these satellites into the worst place ever space is not a place you want to be <laughs> okay. it is cold there's radiation there's debris it, you know it's terrible yeah. um and then you know and, and they still work we can still get photos back from pluto we can still you know go to back to the moon we can still send satellites up that's helping us you know solve the climate crisis so i think so much scope for it so many jobs out there um never think that it's elitist i think we're just very very bad at talking about it it's not like a space that's just i know as a phd student it's not for me to say but it's not just phd students and like these genius people it's it's everybody we're just very very bad at talking about space <laughs> Uh, what's needed the most in the space industry? So what do you need more engineers or do you need, I don't know, designers? What's what's urgent? I think, I think there's always going to be a demand for the engineers because at the heart of everything we do is, you know, the rockets, the satellites, you know, getting to space, designing the payloads, things like that. Um, but I think there's a lot more draw as well for these kind of, adjacent sectors um, so regulation you mentioned and i think that's going to be huge in the next few years anything to do with policy changes um in the uk especially you know we're, we're launching our own satellites for the first time from uk soil yeah. and that involves an incredible amount when it comes to insurance and licensing and you know developing that whole system <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't exist you kind of have to create it out of nothing um so as an engineer definitely enough engineering jobs especially if you can do anything with software because mm. software engineers are gold and we have to compete with every other sector for them so if you're a software engineer come to us um but the yeah engineers in general as well and then there's the other huge sector which is uh, operations so mm. your ground stations you know being able to control the satellite we have to babysit them so much you know just to make sure <laughs> that they're not flying into anything or doing anything strange um so being able to do that from earth as well Okay. Um, you mentioned space being a very harsh environment. Um, and I've been asked this question, and I want to ask you the same thing. Uh, would you go up into space? Because my answer to that was that space is so scary. Like, it really, really scares me. And I have no desire going up there. But if I was offered the chance to turn it down would be a very 
dumb thing you know like if if someone <laughs> it's a hard thing to say no to yeah yeah like you have the chance to go I think I, I'd have to go what do you think would you go I I would go I yeah. I've been asked this question I have no idea why I would go <laughs> but I just have this I have this huge desire to go to space even though as part of an analog astronaut mission before I found out everything that can go wrong with you in space all right <laughs> I, I know when you first get there you're going to be incredibly nauseous mm. you're going to feel hungover um all the blood is going to rush to your head because your body is pumping blood at the same speed but it's you know gravity's not there yeah. um your eyesight will come back permanently damaged you know after a few months in space uh if you if you have any emergencies up there you have to perform stuff on yourself yep. which especially for dental emergencies does not sound great I think we, we went through um administ administrating uh, anesthetic to yourself in your mouth um, and being able to kill yourself as well because the the nerve where you're where you have to insert it is very close to another nerve that might end up ending your life so it is it is you know terrifying and yet I really really want to go <laughs> it looks amazing just just yeah it's just that the whole thing that every astronaut comes back with saying you know completely changed their view of earth and just being able to see it from such a distance and um after the GRG flights as well floating is very fun <laughs> you yeah. want to be able to just float in space <laughs> astronauts are very carefully selected though i i had the chance to speak to a few of them I'm, I'm sure you've met um some as well and they were all the same like very calm um psychologically seemingly very stable people i i've, I've never seen people like them before um so <laughs> i i think they're they're amazing people and and we need more of those on earth as well <laughs> yeah no definitely but if you think about it um they're just the, like, they're like the creme de la creme, like they're yeah. top of the top. Because in the last session, there was, what, 20, 22,000, 23,000 people who applied for oh, yeah. the last set of ESA astronauts. Yeah. And then there's only, you know, a handful, <laughs> a dozen, you know. Yeah. So it's it's really the top brass people that we have <laughs> that are going into space. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, well, thank you very much for talking to us. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in Manchester at the NSSC 23. And whoever wants to come along, hopefully they will come along. And I wish you all the best. And please clean up space for us. <laughs> I'll try. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening and join us next time for more.